Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week, we're very pleased to welcome John Wright, Global Head of Credit at Bain Capital. How are you, John? I'm great. Thanks for having me, James. Thanks so much for joining today. We're excited to dig into your market views and the outlook. We're also delighted to welcome back Bloomberg's very own Lisa Lee, covering credit markets from London. Great to see you again, Lisa. Good to be here again. And from Bloomberg Intelligence, excellent to see Mike Holland again. Welcome back, Mike. Thank you, James. Great to be here. So let's start with you, John. It's great to have you on the credit edge. Credit markets are trading at very tight levels. There's more demand than supply as investors race to lock in these relatively high yields while they still can before the Fed starts easing. But meanwhile, we're seeing record levels of issuance. Companies have a lot more refinancing to do this year, and they're taking advantage of a window to sell bonds and loans. Um, But there's a lot of debate also about how much and how soon the Fed will cut rates. Um, which will also have a big impact on credit. And at the same time, the economy is expected to slow, which will have an impact on earnings. Let's start there, John. In this environment, how do you view valuations? Are investors being compensated enough for the corporate credit risks? I mean, all of the, you know, the likelihood of downgrades, defaults and bankruptcies. Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I think to start with, I'd say what a difference a year makes. If we think about the market outlook last year at the beginning of the year, uh, consensus was very much focused on uh, an imminent recession, and I think it was one of the most well-predicted recessions across the macro community. And um, clearly, that recession recession hasn't come to take place. And if anything, I think our macro view is actually still pretty constructive on the on the back of what is very strong fiscal stimulus from 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 the government. And so overall, I'd say um, the economy has done much better than than certainly we expected, and I think the market expected. Um, how that translates into the CLO market and what we're seeing happening in the CLO market today. Um, at the end of last year into this year, I'd say we finally are seeing um, some rationalization for what has been very widespread for CLO liabilities. Part of that is driven by increased demand from banks, um, as well as just a recognition that the spread uh, on the CLO liability side has been much wider than the underlying loan market um, relative to history. And so that's driving a lot of activity, that's driving demand for loans, that's driving CLO creation. Um, And that's led to a place where uh, in the loan market, we're seeing a lot of refinance activity. I think we've seen close to $70 billion of repricings this year in the loan market. Um, So taking that all into context, I think now we're at a place where loan valuations are are really close to fair relative to historicals. Uh, And I think from a macro perspective, we feel like default rates have come up from sub 1% to somewhere around 2 to 3%. And I think they're likely to stay in that range. Um, that's not a problematic range for the CLO market or the loan market. I think that's um, actually an area where uh, firms like ours, where we're credit pickers, where there is a good amount of dispersion within the loan market, we feel like we can, we can drive differentiated returns. So overall, I think 
valuations are fair. And I think the the tightening in liability spreads for the CLL market has been healthy. Um, I do think as we roll the clock forward for the next few months, we'd expect to see some new organic supply of loans. Uh, the lack of supply of loans is partly driving that technical support. And as that supply comes online, I think we'll see some easing of this tightening pressure. So a huge amount to unpack there, John. You've gone right down the rabbit hole of CLOs. But I just wanted to back up a little bit on your macro view um, in terms of, you know, first of all, recession. Do you expect one to be th this year in the U.S.? Um, we don't. Uh, we don't expect a recession. Um, I know you asked the question about rates, and I think we've been surprised to the upside. We as a market um, have been surprised to the upside by how well the economy has done. Uh, and uh, we think there's still a lot of, of real support uh, for economic activity. As I mentioned, I think the piece that a lot of economists missed was the impact of um, the, the deficit spending the government's doing and how that's having an impact on the economy. So um, I think on the margin, our view is um, the economy is is relatively robust in the short term. Um, that inflation is is something that the, the Fed is going to be focused on containing. Um, and while inflation has come down a bunch, that doesn't mean that it can't go back up. Uh, and that that means the cuts are probably not going to come as quickly as the market expects. So not much? Uh, I think less than what the market expects. Okay. Um, you know, clearly, if, if the economy does slow down faster than our expectations, um, they could come faster. But I think our base case is that the market's expecting and almost hoping for more cuts than, than what's likely. Okay. So you've gone into CLOs very quickly. That For all our listeners out there who don't know about it, it's collateralized loan obligations. That's kind of repackaging of leveraged loans into securities of different risk um, levels. Um, that market has been a bit of a tough one because there hasn't been a lot of supply of leveraged loans. Um, the leveraged loan market seems to be a bit challenged on the one hand because of defaults. I think people expect there to be more defaults in leveraged loans. And also because the proposition for floating rate um, investments uh, is somewhat diminished by the fact that the Fed is going to start an easing campaign. So you won't get that upside of, of rates. Um, how does that all fit into your assessment of, of the outlook for CLOs, John? Sure. Um well, CLOs and credit markets more broadly, especially on the on the leveraged loan side, um, are, are floating rate in nature. And so um, they've benefited from higher rates. I think in some ways, as credit investors, we, we're looking at um, risks as rates go higher, meaning the pressure that that puts on companies in terms of their interest coverage and their ability to pay their debts. The flip side of that is in a, in a tougher economic environment, if you do see those rate cuts come through, that is actually a, a, a day one benefit to these floating rate borrowers. So overall, I'd say we're still very constructive on the opportunity in the credit market. And I think the CLO um, market is one that is inherently very closely linked to the loan market because CLOs own about two thirds of the underlying loan market um, and is, is really the, the largest buyer of leveraged loans. And the relationship between the borrowing costs in the CLO market and, and the yields at which you can buy loans is a, is a relationship that, that tends to um, drive what amount of activity that there is. So um, all of those things, I think, present some really interesting opportunities, both on the CLO liability side, as well as the valuations in the loan market. We're talking about leveraged loan supplies, one of the reasons why supply has been so low is that M&A activity has been reduced. Mm -hmm. In addition, when there is LBOs and M&A, a lot of those financings have gone to what's now the emergent private credit space. With CLOs, improving with the market improving do you expect some of that market share to come back and what will it take for us to see robust supply again sure that's a great question um to address private credit versus the broadly syndicated market i think it's it makes the most sense to look at it through the lens of the borrowers and by the borrowers i mean both the companies as well as the the 
um, predominantly private equity sponsors that own them. Um, these borrowers are sophisticated and they're looking for um, a combination of a, a, a the lowest cost of borrowing they can get as well as in some instances certainty of execution or flexibility in their debt. And when the broadly syndicated market is strong, typically it's pricing at a lower yield and therefore a lower borrowing cost for these companies relative to private credit providers. If you look at a year like 2023 and even 22 to some extent, um, when the broadly syndicated market was not really fully functioning uh, and underwriters were not uh, openly looking to take a lot of risk, um, private credit really has a key advantage in that it, it can provide that certainty of execution and it can provide flexibility and financing. Um, but that's a pendulum that swings back and forth. So in short, I do think the strength in the broadly syndicated market will lead to a situation where broadly syndicated takes market share from private credit in LBO financings. I don't think either goes to zero. I think the private credit financing for these mega cap deals will continue to exist. But I think the competitive dynamic has started to have that pendulum swing back toward uh, broadly syndicated. And part of, as you noted, part of the reason why the pendulum is swinging back is because CLO activity has increased really on the backs of AAA um, prices tightening. A huge contrast from this year to even to the end of last year. And I'm hearing that managers want to press it down even lower. So where do you think spreads will go? Right now it's about 150. In December it was 170. Where do you think, how low could it go? And what would it take to really bring the market back? Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the tightening that we've seen for CLO AAAs over the last, I would say, two months has been pretty significant. Um, as you mentioned, we're now seeing AAA spreads um, on some deals that are being talked even below. Um, so for plus 150 basis points, that's a meaningful move from where we were uh, for most of 2023. And so I think in many ways we are back. We're to a functioning market. We're to a place where CLO formation is, is quite robust. January has had a significant amount of, of, of new CLO uh, formation. Um, and I think that's the result of two things. One is a recognition that uh, 150 basis points for that CLO AAA risk is still very attractive to those AAA investors. And secondly, I think there's some structural um, changes around bank appetite for CLO AAAs as an asset class. And as they return to the market, um, that's helping drive those spreads tighter. Um, CLO managers, of course, are going to want to try to drive borrowing costs as low as possible, or ultimately CLO equity investors are going to want to do that. Um, but I think, we're, I think we are back. I think they could f go further tighter from here, but the pace of that tightening very recently has been, has been notable. And what about issuance volume, John? Does it increase substantially compared to last year? I do think there will be um, more issuance this year than last year. Um, you know, if you look at the dynamics in the CLO market, the, the things that drive issuance activity are, um, number one, uh, liability levels, because as liabilities tighten, you have not only organic new issuance for CLOs, but you also have deals that are in the money to be refinanced uh, or restructured. Um, but also, as borrowing costs are lower, um, those who take a long-term view of CLOs want to lock in those spreads for a long time. And so um, if you're an episodic issuer, if you want to come to market when liability costs are low, um, those are the types of, of deals that are coming to market now. So I expect if liability spreads stay where they are or tighten further, we will continue to see a significant amount of issuance activity. Okay. And so on the, on the investor side, what is the pitch right now to investors? Because you can get a, you know, a high-grade U.S. bond with a lot of liquidity um, with a you know, pretty fat yield compared to history right now. Why do all the work? Why bother? Why, why get all fancy with a CLO when you don't really have to? 
Well, I think CLOs as an as an asset class, um, you know, have lived through um, varying degrees of investor adoption and understanding. Um, I do think over time, more and more institutional investors appreciate the asset class and differentiate it from other structured products that haven't had um, as strong uh, an historical performance track record. Um, I think if you look at valuations today, there's a couple things to think about across fixed income and credit markets. Number one, yes, interest rates are higher across the board, but the curve is inverted. And so um, being able to own floating rate um, product at a higher yield than fixed rate product because of that inversion is attractive to many investors. And then you have to think about what your view is on the pace of rate cuts. Um, as it relates to spreads, if you look across fixed income and credit markets today, we've seen a lot of those spreads tighten to a place where they're now either in the range of median spread levels or tighter than historical spreads. Um, and what's true for CLO debt, especially um, junior CLO debt, is it's still actually quite wide relative to its historic spread. And so while your comment is true, you can get high-grade bonds at a higher yield than you've been able to for a long time. Um, you could also get CLO debt not only at a much higher yield um, than you typically can, but also at a wider spread. And so for those investors that are comfortable with the asset class that are willing to go through um, the complexity of the asset class and are willing to think through um, manager performance and, and all those dynamics, um, we think it's actually a, a compelling uh, opportunity. But on the complexity side, a lot of people have kind of um, made the analogy just purely by association of you know CLO, CDO, therefore you know complexity equals risk, therefore you know financial crisis, et cetera. Um, what do you say to that one? I mean, how do you how do you convince them that this is actually quite safe? Sure, I think to start with, if you look at the historic track record, there is a stark difference between um, ABS CDOs and CLOs. Uh, if you look at the historic default rates of CLO debt, it's it's virtually zero um, across different tranches of CLO debt, and so I think there is um, the, the the proof is in the pudding from an historic performance perspective. And then secondly, um, just going through and thinking about the dynamics of a senior secured portfolio that includes a cross-section of the economy, um, both from an industry and company diversity perspective. Um, and you go through that level of detail and understand some of the cash traps and the features that exist in CLOs that protect debt investors. Um, for those investors that are willing to go through that analysis, typically they get comfortable with the product. Um, I do think there are some investors who just choose to, to, to not bother with that level of detail, and those are the ones who stay, stay away. And yet we still do expect more defaults and much lower recoveries, right, Over uh, compared to history. So there is um, possibly a, a much higher level of risk um, on the on the loan level. But but are you saying that when you package them and diversify, then you, you're you not exposed to that? Yeah, I, th I think you're exposed to it to varying degrees, depending on how deep in the capital structure you are for CLOs. I think historic default rates are applicable in my in my opinion I think historic recovery rates is where we're seeing a difference versus today um, some of the dynamics around the restructuring process some of the inner inner creditor um, dynamics and flexibility that lives within the underlying uh, loan documents today presents a situation where we have seen a de deterioration in loan recoveries as well as uh, a higher dispersion of loan recoveries so um, the outcomes are much broader uh, now, uh, not just across different companies, but across a single restructuring for different lenders. Uh, and so I think the risk really presents itself in the recovery rate. So John, since you're the global head, I'm going to move the discussion over to Europe where I'm based and ask what do you think about credit 
spreads and valuation here, given that the economic outlook isn't as bright as in the U.S., but mm -hmm. the nature of the market is a little bit less deep, less liquid. And to your point, what you just made about recovery levels, recovery levels probably might not be as bad as those in Europe. When you weigh all those things together, what's your outlook for Europe? Yeah, sure. I think um, Europe versus the U.S. to start with from a macro standpoint, I think the the constructive dynamics we see around the economy in the U.S. is um, slightly in favor from an underlying macro perspective relative to the countries in Europe in aggregate. That said, I think from a valuation perspective, um, our underlying view of valuations of the credit market in Europe versus the U.S. right now is they're about a fair fight. Um, with the benefit in Europe being you haven't seen quite as rapid a repricing on the loan side that you've seen um, in the U.S. You are correct. Europe generally is is um, more concentrated, less liquid. It's not as deep or as large a market as the U.S., but that presents some interesting opportunities. And um, I think uh, across uh, traded credit as well as structured credit, um, we continue to, to find opportunities from you know single B and up across the capital structure. Um, so I'd say right now on a relative value basis, even though we think the macro favors the U.S. from a valuations perspective, um, we don't have so negative a view of Europe that we think credit um, is risking going wider. So we think it's a fair fight on a relative value basis. And so um, you mentioned the repricings and that's they've been wild in the U.S. and then and that's so in Europe, but still substantial. When you look at the repricings, could those actually stop the party? Can, with the ARB get so bad, the CLO creation, will that stop because loan spreads get too tight? Because which CLOs have just come back and just become the normal market as it was. Yeah, absolutely it can. Um, you know, I think the question is to what degree and, and when that happens. Um, you know, when we look at the context of repricings this year, as I mentioned in the U.S., I think we're about 70 billion. I think last year it was about 80 billion for the full year. So we're here on the last day of January. And, um, you know, we've almost already exceeded last year. So the pace of repricings has been has been significant to start the year. Um, when we think about spread coming out of the market, ultimately the driver of CLO issuance activity is how attractive that equity is and whether it's attractive enough to uh, invest in the equity. And that's going to be a function of the relationship between the asset yield and the liability spread. And if you see that asset yield coming down because of rampant repricings, um, that will slow CLO formation, which will in turn uh, decrease the demand for loans, and therefore you'll see a decrease in the repricings. That said, um, I think in the U.S. for as much as we've seen on the repricing side, I think the average spread decrease this year is is still in the single digits, something like eight basis points across the market. So while it feels painful to see that spread leaving the market, um, I don't think that we've seen enough repricing that it's really going to change the, the, the rate at which CLOs are being issued. Hey, John, uh, Mike Collins here. Quick question on sector biases. As a healthcare credit analyst here at BI, we've seen a lot of uh, loan issues uh, in the healthcare sector. I wonder, you know, also on the telco side, obviously, um, do you have a bias right now? I mean, what's your outlook for the troubled sectors? Maybe what do you see uh, maybe blossoming or getting a little better in 2024? Sure. Um, one of the things that I think is most interesting about what we've seen develop um, from an industry and sector basis uh, across the loan market in the U.S. is industries that traditionally were identified as defensive um, versus industries that typically were defined as cyclical. If you think about commodities, if you think about metals and mining, um, when you go through the loan market today and you parse dispersion, and by dispersion I mean kind of the range of spreads that you see between the widest spread names and the tightest spread names, 
dispersion is the least pronounced in those industries that are um, cyclical. And it's most pronounced in industries where um, they were typically thought of as being defensive, things like healthcare and telecom and software. Um, what we like about that is I think that plays to our strengths in credit selection. So um, as we think about our industry overweights and underweights, um, I'd say we, we tend to be overweight things that are relatively defensive industries like um, aerospace and defense. Um, healthcare and telecom are the two largest um, industries in the loan market. So we obviously have a lot of exposure there and we then sub-segment that into sub-sectors. But ultimately, I think we appreciate and are happy that we're in a situation where dispersion is wide in those sectors. So we have opportunities to go through and pick our spots on a company by company basis. You mentioned when these struggling companies go into distress and default, recoveries have been just horrifying, like 10 cents, 20 cents, versus a historical of 70, 80. Do you think that's a secular change? I know people are expecting lower recoveries, but not this low. Do you think it's just, it's just the first batch that are poor? Or are you braced for really poor recoveries and more lender and lender violence, which has been one of the real, real drivers of low recoveries this go around? Sure. I think there are two um, related but different points on this. Um, the first is I do think loan recoveries are lower, and I think that's a function of weaker documentation um, and um, you know abilities for different participants to extract value in different ways. But the second thing I would say about that is for a given company, I don't think there is a single recovery anymore. Um, and the reason for that is that um, if you are a holder of pre-petition debt and you go through restructuring, um, whether or not you're participating in subsequent fundings has a meaningful impact in what your recovery value is. And so I think, yes, the average recovery rate will be lower in loans. I think we've already seen that, right? We've seen recoveries average somewhere between 40 and 55, 60 cents, as opposed to the historic 75 to 80. Um, but the dispersion around that is is relevant, as well as the fact that for a given restructuring, not all creditors are having the same outcome. It depends whether you're in the group and whether you're participating in these additional fundings. So, um, John, you mentioned earlier private credit, which is what everyone wants to talk about on this show. Um, and it's just growing so quickly. Um, at what point do we see private credit CLOs? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we do see private credit CLOs um, today uh, as a part of the market. And one of the interesting and I think very constructive um, evolutions of the middle market or private credit CLO space is, you know, traditionally middle market CLOs were done as a financing tool for um, holders of private credit or middle market loans, um, things like BDCs or funds that owned the underlying loans. And this was just a mechanism for, for going out and, and financing those portfolios. Um, what we're seeing now is, is much more proactive, still some of that using the CLO market as a financing, but more creation for the sake of owning a part of the capital structure in a private credit or middle market CLO, more demand for middle market CLO equity as an asset class, as opposed to just owning the assets in various forms of financing. And so I think we're going to continue to see um, that private credit middle market CLO market share grow. Uh, and I think it's a I think it's a healthy thing. And what about the big private credit deals that are getting done? I mean, it's becoming ever more mainstream. Does that mean that you're you know going beyond the middle market in terms of CLOs? We at Bain Capital are not. Um, you know, we've seen the private credit space and the direct lending space evolve a lot as many of our public competitors have moved in, moved into um, you know, really mega cap private credit and indirect lending deals um, where, you know, they're multi-billion dollar um, 
sub you know sub syndicates almost where you're just disintermediating the broadly syndicated market um we're active in the core middle market where these companies are um for the most part still private equity and sponsor um backed but um they're 25 to 75 million dollar ebitda companies and so um the size of the financings are are smaller uh and we typically are in a control position in those and we feel as though we get better um, structure in, in the documents, better covenants, uh, and we think better relative value there. So we have not moved um, up market. I do think, um, to Lisa's question earlier, um, as you see the recovery in the broadly syndicated market, and as you think about the inherent kind of cost of a private credit strategy relative to broadly syndicated, um, it does, you know, I think pose the question, how do you compete with the broadly syndicated market on a cost basis? Uh, and I think those lenders are going to really have to differentiate more in terms of flexibility or providing more leverage or lending to riskier companies that the broadly syndicated market is unwilling to finance in order to continue to see the same levels of deal activity um, for those mega cap deals. Yeah, we're certainly seeing a lot of competition between the two sides at this point. Um, in terms of opportunities, John, globally, your you know, global credit uh, position, you probably look at a lot of different things. What do you think the best opportunity is in credit for this year when you look at everything? Yeah, there are a lot of, of really compelling opportunities in credit, and maybe I'll start with your comment about global. Um, one of the areas where um, we haven't seen a lot of uh, growth in traditional either private credit um, or, or other kind of corporate lending is in Asia. And um, we at Bain Capital have um, a large presence in Asia um, in, in private equity. We have a large presence presence in Asia um, in special sits. Uh, and we, we have a large presence in credit and have been lending to companies um, through our special sits funds as well as um, we have some dedicated investments in Australia where we're doing direct lending. Um, and then away from that, I'd say um, the opportunity across uh, private credit continues to be quite robust. Um, we think the, the freeze in activity on the M&A and, and, and private equity sponsor side um, is thawing. We're seeing pipelines build and activity um, starting to come to market. And I think that will beget a really attractive uh, vintage of uh, senior and potentially junior capital transactions on the private, uh, on the private credit side, um, as well as some capital solution-oriented investments. Um, we recently closed um, a, a strategy that focuses on junior capital investments in private companies. And we expect that with the valuation changes over the last few years, as well as the increase in interest rates, there are a number of capital structures that need to get refinanced where there will be uh, a shortfall uh, from the senior lender that's stepping in versus the one who's being repaid. And I think that will be yet some really interesting opportunities uh, for junior capital. Um, that, and again, where we started on liquid credit market side, um, we think both the dispersion in the liquid market, even though the liquid market has tightened significantly, presents um, some good idiosyncratic opportunities. And um, we think the CLO opportunity is going to stay with us uh, for the better part of this year. But when you say Asia, I mean, other than Australia, which countries and what sectors are you specifically thinking about there? Yeah, sure. So um, as I mentioned, um, we do have a dedicated um, lending platform in Australia that has been operating for years. I think that's one of the um, strongest bankruptcy regimes in the world. Uh, and so there are a lot of um, great kind of creditor uh, aspects to that um, geography as well as, um, you know, a, a, a strong developed underlying economy. Um, I think India is a very interesting uh, region uh, as it relates to um, the robustness of, of the underlying economy. It's obviously um, not as developed as a place like Australia, but I think India is um, one of the largest geographies we expect to have activity. And then 
again, given we have um, such a large team across different regions within Asia, um, we do expect that um, we're going to have opportunities across different countries uh, beyond India and Australia. But I think those two will be the largest. Great. So um, before we talk to Mike Holland um, at Bloomberg Intelligence, a bit more detail about healthcare, I just wanted to kind of get you to sum up the risks, because obviously um, everybody's um, everyone in credit is worried about stuff generally, and, and there seems to be a lot of stuff to worry about. But but what do you what keeps you up at night? Sure. Um, I think the the recovery rates in the loan market has been topical and for good reason. Um, you know, the question you mentioned earlier, Lisa, is is one that that we think a lot about, um, which is um, when you're looking at a company that's a performing company, when you're doing the analysis of thinking what a restructuring would look like, um, you know, we've we, we really have to get creative in terms of thinking about downside cases and thinking about how bad that could be. And I think you can't take comfort from being a senior secured lender uh, in the way that historically you you could. Uh, and so that's something that we do spend a lot of time on. Um, we have an existing restructuring group um, here at Bain Capital Credit um, that we've beefed up over the last couple of years. Uh, and I think we're just very actively thinking about um, how to manage those situations. Um, another comment I'd make about that is I do think that's a case where um, being a scale player matters. Um, we've seen instances where if you're a small lender, you get, you're, you're not part of a group. Um, but if you're a larger lender, um, you're really, you have to be a part of the equation. And so um, you can really do everything you can to make sure you're looking out uh, on behalf of your investors uh, in a way that's differentiated relative to, to some of the smaller managers in the market. Um, so I think that's an example of, of scale um, helping uh, to, to drive better outcomes. Um, so that's one I'd say. And um, the other is just broadly macro risk and thinking about um, positioning and liquidity and, and how markets respond to different interest rates and interest rate environments. Um, and I'd say the last one fundamentally is if we're right about our economic outlook, that the economy is strong and that rates are going to stay um, higher for longer than the market expects. Um, there is a question of for how long can these borrowers continue to make their interest payments um, at elevated levels. And we do stress analysis on our portfolio very regularly. Uh, and what we've seen happen over the last uh, couple of years with higher interest rates is that interest covers has held in better than expected, but that's generally been um, covered by dipping into liquidity. And so that liquidity will cover you um, for a period of time, but the longer high rates last, um, the, the more you deplete that liquidity. And so um, I think that's a, a counter to a relatively constructive economic outlook that we think about pretty regularly and we stress in the portfolio. Great stuff. John Wright, Global Head of Credit at Bain Capital. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Also want to say a big thanks to Lisa Lee with Bloomberg News in London. Great to see you on the show. Great. Thank you for having me again. Read all of Lisa's great scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. So, Mike Holland at Bloomberg Intelligence. You look at healthcare, which is a very broad area and for some reason full of distress when it comes to the debt. Uh, your coverage extends all the way to Weight Watchers, which is having a tough time in the debt markets. Their bonds, um, when I last looked, were below 50 cents on the dollar. Um, when I looked in October, they were up at 70. Um, they're now yielding 20%, which is a pretty high implied risk of default. What's going on, Mike? What's, what's the problem with Weight Watchers? Yeah, so, you know, this is one we spoke about together a couple of months ago. And as you said, the bonds were about 20 points higher. Um, one of the challenges that Weight Watchers has today under its new uh, leadership is pivoting from, you know, uh, behavioral-based 
sort of treatment opportunity to one in which uh, these new GLP-1s, the Govies and Manjaros, are, um, are dispensed and, and through telehealth and prior authorizations through the sequence business, which is now called Weight Watchers Clinic. And I think one of the challenges the company had was not alienating their existing customer base for a, you know, what has really been a 60 year old institution uh, Weight Watchers has and pivoting that company to something that's sort of goes against its original foundations of uh, behavioral change absent, you know, medically assisted treatment. Um, what we're seeing today and, and anecdotally and through some of the alternative data that Bloomberg has on the terminal is uh, the existing business seems to be suffering, meaning the membership base seems to be churning faster and not growing. And the company has sort of put all of its eggs in this uh, Weight Watchers clinic basket. And we're, you know, while we can see a little bit of that data on the terminal of the sequence sales, so the, rather than the $20 a month or $20 subscription, you go into a $99 a month subscription for sequence. We haven't seen the uptake really kick off yet. Now, earnings for Weight Watchers will um, will hit in early March, and we'll have a good read through on sequence growth. And and so the, I, I guess the question really is, is will the new business take off fast enough before the existing business runs out of cash? And I think that's what investor concerns are right now. I think a lot of I, I get a lot of calls by equity options traders on on this one, and you've seen a lot of equity volatility, but you've also seen a lot of volatility on the bonds as well. The company's levered, you know, with earnings around you know 130 million probably for 2023. The company's leveraged over 10 times, and um, without a growth catalyst that's that's exhibiting itself, I mean, we're still waiting to see if sequence will. Will launch if it does launch and it, it grows, then this company could be a it could be a real big return for equity holders today and and bond holders who get in around fifty cents on the dollar. But there are certainly some some real questions that remain and risks that are out there. But the yield would suggest it should be rated much lower, right? I mean, it's single B right now. It should be triple C based on that yield, shouldn't it? Yes, I think uh, you know this company has been triple C before and. Uh, I, I would imagine if, um, you know, according to Raiders targets on this company, um, you know, we put out in our notes that uh, Moody's and S&P basically say if leverage is over eight times for Moody's and over seven times for S&P that there will trigger a downgrade. Um, we're, we're right in that wheelhouse right now. So uh, it would it would look like the agencies uh, might um, might might notch this uh, over time. But, you know, with the bonds trading where they are already, I, I wouldn't imagine it would have that much of a, uh, you know, a negative impact to price, uh, given we're already below 50 cents on the dollar for the bonds. M mind you, the term loan is also 60 cents on the dollar. And the bond, uh, as we were talking earlier with John Wright, is technically senior secured uh, along with the term loan, uh, just to, but, you know, really in name only. Um, I thought I'd highlight that. So if you have to bet either way, Mike, do you think they'll make it? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, my, my, my bias is, is as a credit analyst, is I'm more of a cynic and a realist and, uh, you know, hopes and dreams don't make uh, a great credit investor. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm conditioned to say it's probably not, 
But, uh, you know, if they are able to get a, a small uptake on sequence, meaning, uh, you know, 50 to 100,000 new uh, new subscriptions to that new uh, initiative, it could really change the game, right? It's It could really add uh, liquidity to the picture. It could to drive uh, earnings growth. And so, you know, it's a wait and see story right now. And um, again, as a credit as a credit investor or credit analyst, I'm uh, I'm biased to the negative and and you know looking to condition down condition downside. So, I would not be betting all my uh, cards on this one. We're always so pessimistic, are we? Does there any um, read through, Mike, for the for the sector though, or is it very specific to this one name? Oh, I think this is very specific, right? But uh, to, to to Weight Watchers, it's the, the idiosyncratic risk here is is, is meaningful. Um, I think it, it does provide a read through, in a sense, to the uptake on GLP ones more broadly. Um, you know, uh, what Weight Watchers is is trying to do is to you know, in a sense, almost become a specialty pharmacy that drives prior authorizations and distributes or manages the distribution. Of GLP ones to a new customer base, um, uh, and and I think that it's a it's a big jump for what they from what they were before, and uh, it remains to be seen really at this point whether or not that trajectory will will launch. And I saved my dumb question for last. What are GLP ones? Can you explain that to me? Mm-hmm. Uh, these really exciting new drugs that are out there that were previously uh, drugs prescribed for diabetes have been known to reduce weight loss uh, by about 20%. You could reduce your weight um, by 20% if you take these drugs weekly, injections, but uh, they, they are very expensive, predominantly cash pay for uh, wealthy folks. It's not generally covered by commercial insurance uh, or Medicare. Or really, There are some states, I believe, that cover it on Medicaid, but for diabetes mainly. So the question is whether or not insurance companies will pay for weight loss, which yeah. is something they haven't really done previously. And I think uh, Weight Watchers is, is leading the charge, really, in trying to uh, modify perceptions about weight loss drugs and, and really drive coverage. So we'll see over time if their initiatives pay off. And they have the brand name. They've been around for a long time. Everyone knows that. It's a household name. So maybe there's something there. But Mike Holland at Bloomberg Intelligence, thank you again for joining us. Thank you, James. Check out all of Mike's research on the Bloomberg Terminal. It's great stuff. Or do contact him directly if you need more information. And thanks again to John Wright over at Bain Capital and to Lisa Lee from Bloomberg News. Read all of Lisa's great scoops on the Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. And please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, Google and Spotify. Give us a review. Tell your friends or email me directly at jcrombie8 at Bloomberg.net. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. Join us again next week on The Credit Edge. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.